96.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, August the 13th, 2013. Last night, I just couldn't sleep. About 4 a.m., I found myself watching old movies, you know. I was watching Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Well, anyway, Hollywood spin on Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> this one was released in 1935. Let's see. 1935. I was just over a year old, so I didn't see it, of course, Till nine years later, but uh, this is my favorite version of Miss Summer Night's Dream. There have been several others. Um, the most recent one was yes, some it had they had something, but uh, mostly they had color. Yes, beautiful color. But this is a black and white film, and I guess uh, it's one of those classics that. We need to save forever and ever. I want to buy a couple copies and give it to some young friends. Uh, I think it's a wonderful way to introduce the young to Shakespeare. Uh, I think, I think they, young people, of course, they, they won't be knocked out the way I was by James Cagney and Mickey Rooney because they won't remember them as older actors. You know how that is. Uh, Olivia de Havilland is just beautiful. She's so, she's young. She's an ingenue. Uh, I think this is the most unusual, unique film, uh, at least for me, that came out of the 30s. I wish, hmm, I wish there was some way to explain to kids uh, what it was like in Hollywood back in the day, how these actors film actors really did uh, idolize the stage and theater and they were also proud to be able to do Shakespeare on screen uh, Olivia de Havilland plays Hermia Hermia, right and would you believe Victor Jory is Oberon the king of the fairies yes, remember Victor Jory in that movie, The Fugitive Kind, with Marlon Brando, and uh, uh, 
Anamanyani, the vicious, vicious uh, husband upstairs. You remember that? Anyway, Victor Jory is hardly recognizable as Oberon. He's on a great black horse and huge cape. His cape is acres and acres long and he has a headdress. It has antlers and, uh, you know, tree branches. Sometimes he almost melts into the trees and seems to become at one with them. Of course, all of the fairies and fantasy people are part of the forest. Uh, James Cagney plays Bottom the Weaver. He's the one putting together a play, you know, to, to perform before the gentry at the end of the play. They are uh, locals, and they would be the underclass in Elizabethan England. Of course, Shakespeare sets the play near Athens. It's an anachronism because they're all dressed like Elizabethans, <laughs> you know. Uh, the thing that really knocked me out and that makes me think that young people should see this movie is Mickey Rooney as Puck. Just unearthly. Uh, several of my friends when I was growing up played Puck. And I don't think they could begin to touch what Mickey Rooney does with this role. Uh, he has this wild laugh. Kind of frightening. Uh, primordial force. I think he must have been about, I would guess he's nine years old. Uh, let's see, Mickey Rooney was short. He could have been 10 or 11 at the very most. But he, he looks even younger. Uh He's uh, Pan, Pan himself, the green man, the horned god, a magical imp, mythical. Uh, I think they did put some little, some little horns on him, but it seemed to me that they weren't there the first half of the movie, and then suddenly they seemed to be popping out uh, at the top of his forehead. Uh, I was thinking... You know, in later years, there's no trace of this. What is it called? Uh, it's, he, he was, what is that word? Uh, he's a wraith. Something about, uh, being unearthly and not of this world. Uh, it's a word that's gone from me now, but anyway, if you ever get a chance to see it, I think you will be blown away by, uh, Mickey Rooney, I kept thinking, what is his home life like, this little boy who plays Puck? Uh, anyway, we see Victor Jory as Oberon. He comes out. He says to the, the, uh, the queen of the fairies, Titania, yes, ill met by moonlight, proud Titania, and she says, I have forsworn his bed and company. She has stolen away a little uh, East Indian child, and he wants the child. Uh, it's a little game they play. Uh, the fairies in this one, <laughs> there's it isn't subtle. They're practically nude, but of course they have body uh, body suits on. But their hair goes down to the ground. They have these long, long trails. It's like Christmas, Christmas tinsel, right? Uh, all the way to their ankles. They glitter and gleam. Uh, at one point, we see Puck pull down the bough of a tree and jump onto it, turn it into, he has a broomstick. He's a little witch on a broomstick. 
I don't think that worked, but that's okay. Uh, Dick Powell, would you believe? Dick Powell singing. Uh, he's Lysander. He loves Hermia. And uh, her, let's see, Helena is in love with Lysander. And Lysander's in love with Hermia. And oh, well, it goes round and round, you know. Then the fairies put this potion on their eyes so that they uh, love one another. They they get their uh, their partners mixed up. Uh, it's very funny. It's very funny. Uh, at one point, yes, Helena is absolutely distraught because uh, the man that she's in love with does not respond to her, Lysander. She keeps following him through the woods. I love that part. I played it once in high school. She keeps saying, to make a heaven of this hell, to die upon the hand I love so well. Corny stuff. Anyway, the flights of fairy, they, they emerge. There's a mist covering the forest floor. And suddenly, I don't know how they did it, but the mist rises and it turns into this uh, fleet of fairies, this fantastic ballet. Uh, there's a spiral that goes round and round and up to the top, you know, spiraling off to the top of the trees. Uh, Fantasia, fascinating. I don't know why it's so special. It's, what is it, the circles, they aren't the Busby Berkeley kinds of circles, but it is quite a dream. I love some of the phrases, yes. Helena calls Hermia, Hermia's kind of short. She calls her a minimus, minimus, I must try that sometime. And, oh yes, racism, one of them calls the other an Ethiop. How you like that for the N-word, an Ethiop, she says. Helena, right, Helena is tall, so Hernia calls her a painted maypole. That's nothing special. Uh, even today, we have painted maypoles. <laughs> yes. The women are perfectly silly, and of course, they break into jealous fights. And Puck says, Cupid is a naughty lad, thus to make poor females mad. The uh, scenes when Jimmy Cagney puts the play together, he's Bottom the Weaver, uh, are a knockout. He does his little his little dance bits and his little uh, uh, soft shoe bits in there. <laughs> yes, yes, he gets gets a chunk of the woodbine right and spins around. Uh, I think yes, I think he looks like he's having the time of his life. Uh, He's so young, I, I'm sure he's more than a teenager. Uh, anyway, the wonderful scene is when Titania, uh, when she blows away, when Oberon blows away the uh, the magic from her eyes, and <laughs> she wakes up and looks at uh, Bottom. Yes, she says, me thought I was enamored of an ass. <laughs> Yes. Uh, they've changed, Puck has changed Bottom into an ass at one point. Uh, I think, yes, I think at that point, most of the fairies seem to grow up or grow older. 
and the dance becomes, uh, what do you call that, romance, the ballet, all of the little fairies turn into beautiful women, and Oberon's followers are dark. They're kind of, kind of bat's wings, right? They're very dark, uh, very interesting, the black and white motif there. All the lovers, yes, dancing into the trees. Uh, I remember years ago, I saw a stage production of Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, I, I grew up on that play, and I, I don't remember how many times I was in it. I started out playing Peas Blossom when I was six. <laughs> yes, but when I saw the Royal Shakespeare Company do it in San Francisco many years ago. Titania was played by Maura Shearer. You remember her. She was the girl in the red shoes. Uh, Oberon was played by Robert Helpman. They're, of course, dancers. And uh, at the end of the play, they did what the film always does. They they wired them, you know, and they lifted them up off the stage, so they flew into the sky, into the wings. Everybody gasped, you know, because it was on stage. It's the last time I saw Maura Scherer. She's no longer with us. When I watch movies like this, I think there might be some people still alive. I believe that Mickey Rooney is still alive. I read in the tabloids these sad things about... Uh, the people who are supposed to be taking care of him, how they've ripped him off. And then there are some uh, essays, some little bits in the paper say that uh, the people who were in charge of him, supposed to be looking out for his interests, that they uh, had maybe abused him. Yes, elder abuse. I can't imagine anything sadder. Uh, such a sweet little soul he was in, in middle age, I don't know. When he married Ava Gardner, I gave up. Anyway, the other actors in this, in Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, they're all contract players that we are all familiar with, like Joey Brown. He's wonderful. Uh, he, uh, <laughs> you remember him. He has the little bit in Some Like It Hot in the end when he says nobody's perfect to Jack Lemmon. Remember, he's the one that wants to. Get it on with Jack Lemon. Anyway, Joey Brown plays Thisbe in the little play within the play. He's in drag, and uh, it is memorable, a memorable bit, unbelievable, you know. Thus die I, and he keeps stabbing himself. The other, the other uh, locals, Snout the Tinker, Starveling Peter Quince. These are all actors you will recognize from the uh, 1930s. My only disappointment was the Amazon queen, Hippolyta. She's supposed to marry the duke. They're the top gentry in the play, and I had hoped they could turn her into a pagan, but they didn't bother. Yes, most of the uh, uh, elites in this are dressed as very, very well-to-do Elizabethans. I always got a kick out of that, the way Shakespeare's Companies never worried about that sort of thing. They didn't try to. <laughs> they didn't try to uh, have verisimilitude. Uh, I, I have seen the play done in uh, ancient Greek style. Yes, you know, with all the, uh, you know, the, the little togas and things. And 
I don't know, six or one half a dozen of the other. I kind of like it when they go to the trouble of turning them into genuine, genuine uh, Athenians. At the end, the Duke does a little summing up. It's not like not like uh, the Tempest, nothing like that. But uh, the Duke does say uh, that the lunatic, the lover, and the poet have these seething minds, you know. And he's trying to instruct people in fantasy and how to look at things. Anyway, he looks at the little play that they're going to put on in front of him. And he reads the blurb and it says, Very tragical mirth. I remember when I was young, we used to describe things. <laughs> yes, love affairs, everything as very tragical mirth. Anyway, uh, I recommend it. If you can get a copy somewhere, you can, you can sit down with the very young, maybe 10-year-olds, and ask them what they think of it, you know? Uh, I mean, of course, at the end, the little dog steals the show, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I've never known kids who don't get the wild giggles uh, when they watch uh, Joey Brown poking uh, Pyramus, yes, his dead lovers, Romeo and Juliet, yes. And he's poking Cagney, and Cagney keeps rolling over and having to die again, and... Uh, Thisbe says, uh, Asleep, my love? What? Dead, my dove? Okay. I just love this play. And actually, I was thinking about how sad it is about Mickey Rooney. Uh, I suppose life is always a letdown when we think of the, the beauty and the fantasy of youth at the end. Little Puck comes out in the last line in the film... He says, give me your hands, if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. It knocks me out, what life does to our dreams. Anyway, they use the Mendelssohn Wedding March. And, uh, I guess, I guess Mickey Rooney's in his late 80s now. <laughs> sad, sad, sad. Um. Uh, of course, I think the young man, the actor, was manic, no question about it. And his shrieking in this movie did scare me to death the first time I saw it. But I can't help but love that movie. Uh, it reminds me of my, what do you call that, my, almost my preschool life when we used to get, uh, get a couple of, uh, curtains and costumes and, I remember we had an old tennis court out in back where I lived, and we'd put on a play every night. We would all dress up like the characters in Midsummer Night's Dream. I had a couple of tiger cages I liked to use. <laughs> they were uh, they were constantly breaking. I liked to play the the king. My friend Timothy always played the queen. We could always come up with a plot. Uh, I loved those plays. Anyway... What I really meant to talk to you about today, and I've used up more than half my time, my goodness, was uh, something from the New Yorker, of course. I hope you all read your New Yorkers. It's in the August, no, no, July 8 and 15 issue. July 8 and 15. 
It's called The Prodigal Daughter. And actually what I like about this uh, personal history is it is really about Benjamin Franklin's sister. Now, it's written by Jill Lepore, and what she's really doing is telling us all about her mother. And she's doing this uh, parallel to, well, let's say she's putting them side by side. Uh, Jane, Jane Franklin, amazing. She's doing a study or writing a book about Jane Franklin. And it knocked me out. Uh, of course, it's 18th century. I've been doing the Brontes lately, and they're 19th century, and they're positively modern compared to poor Jane Franklin. Uh, it's hard to believe that they were in the same family, Benjamin Franklin being a major star. Uh, yes, great soul, they called him. Anyway, Benjamin Franklin was born in 1706, the youngest of his mother's ten sons, and his sister Jane was born in 1712, the youngest of their father's seven daughters. They called them Benny and Jenny. I love that. I was Jenny when I was young. Anyway, the article by Jill Lepore really uh, goes into a great deal of detail. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. What she's doing, she's not comparing her mother to Jane Franklin, but she sees the parallels. Jane Franklin, of course, lived a completely private life. (laughs) Pretty grim. One of her biggest complaints is that she has no intelligent conversation. But, uh, of course, Benjamin Franklin uh, uh is everywhere, everywhere in Franklin's life. It says, he loved no one longer, she loved no one better. She thought of him as her second self. Uh, Now, three in five women in New England couldn't even sign their names in that day and age. She couldn't read very well. And what she did learn to to do reading and writing, uh, well, Benjamin Franklin taught her what she knew and when he left that was the end of it uh he was 11 she was 11 what he left he was 17 he ran away that's 1723 now the letters half her letters are lost uh let's see three decades worth of letters uh i guess he probably threw them away but there are um uh, there are many. She, the article here says she's reading them all. Uh, mm-hmm. Franklin writes that Jane Franklin was his other half. And he writes, one half the world does not know how the other half lives. Uh, of course, her life is an allegory. And the, the most fun is the spelling. I get a kick out of that. <laughs> Franklin told her that the spelling doesn't matter. I've always believed that. George Bernard Shaw told us we didn't have to spell. But uh, I I don't know why spelling is still an issue. But, for example, if you take the letter uh, W, yes, right, W and F. And, of course, that means wife. Uh, Yes, I don't know. It's so hard for people to understand. Anyway... She writes pretty much uh, phonetically, and uh, 
I love the little letters with the cockeyed spelling. Uh, at one point, Jane Franklin made a little book. She put uh, two covers and four sheets of fool's cap, and she stitched together a little book of 16 pages. Oh, I wish they would make copies and print that up. I would love to have things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. The writer here has seen it in a, a museum. She says there's a ring there that was worn by Jane Franklin, and when nobody was looking, she tried it on, and she was glad to see it didn't fit. <laughs> anyway, her little book that she made, uh, the first page says, Book of Ages, Graceful Calligraphy, Artful A. Uh, she would have learned her letters from a little manual, uh, she writes, Jane Franklin, born March 27th, 1712, married Edward Maycomb, uh, 1727, right. Uh, <laughs> she would have been 15 years and four months. The legal age for marriage in Massachusetts was 16, so she was underage. Uh, Franklin was 24 when he married. Now, the man that Jane married, Edward Maycomb, was 22. He was poor, he was a saddler, and he was a Scot. He wore a wig and a beaver hat, and she never once wrote anything about him expressing the least affection. Oh, dear, the next entry uh, is about her child born... Oh, let's see, about a year and a half later or more. She named her first child for her father. The child died three weeks shy of his first birthday. Uh, she named her last child, I guess, her twelfth. Uh, her twelfth child, I think. I think 17 pregnancies, never mind. It's too grim to record, but uh, her last child was named for her mother. Her mother died shortly after that. Uh, there's a great deal here about her maternity. It's, what is it? It's, it's beyond belief. It's sheer agony. My little ones interrupting me every minute. Ones is spelled W-O-N-S. <laughs> she apologizes for her bad spelling and that kind of thing. At one point, Franklin bought her a house and she's delighted with it as a nice place to live at last. Let's see. She writes that she's painting and fixing it up because, she says, I am painting the front of the house to make it look decent that I may not be ashamed when anybody inquires for Dr. Franklin's sister. <laughs> this is the letter where she says that... Uh, uh, she would like to have some agreeable conversation. She was starved for it, right? Uh, anyway, the letters back and forth are, I would call them heartbreaking. Uh, she, what is it? She's really trying. She's too apologetic, if you ask me. At one point, she finally gets political. And she asks him to send her anything he has written about politics, right, uh-huh, 
And he says to her, he says that he sends her, uh, yes, he says, I'm sending you all the past. He says, but I might as well send you parings of my nails. There is so much. Uh, she wants, quote, all the political pieces he had ever written. <laughs> so apparently she had her consciousness raising very late in life. What an amazing woman. I think, I can't wait until Jill Lepore, who wrote this article, finishes her biography of, uh, of Jane Franklin. I'm going to write her a letter and ask her to send me a copy of this biography just as soon as it's available. Right. Uh, Jane Franklin, another lost soul. This has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Be back on the air again next week at the same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The next KPFA Community Advisory Board meeting happens on August 18th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 1929 Martin Luther King Jr. Way in Berkeley.